Hello fellow time travellers, I hope all is well with you and yours here at the beginning of a, of a new year. Before today's episode I just want to tell you a little bit about my Patreon site which helps to support the making of this podcast. The site's full of history and comment, every week I add a new vodcast which is filmed here at my home in Stirling, it's exclusive to Patreon. For people new to the site there's a great archive of videos uh, that you can catch up on and we have prizes for competitions that we run. To join me, simply go to patreon.com and search for Neil Oliver. It'd be great to have your support and to get as many of you as possible along for the ride. OK, right now it's time to find your sea legs as we set sail for one of the most hauntingly beautiful locations I've ever been to in this week's Love Letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. think about those boys in the shelter of the guns lighting their cigarettes and five of them ducking away from the third light and Arthur leaning in taking his cigarette and I think about how he survived and they didn't. That, that thought occurs to me over and over again and as Arthur said, what does that tell you about? In this episode we set sail for a graveyard cradled in calloused hands Sheltered waters that have played an important role in travel, trade and conflict for centuries. In their time, the Vikings found it a useful harbour. It was enlisted during the Napoleonic Wars by the British Admiralty. And it became home to the Grand Fleet in the First World War. At the end of that great war, the German fleet was scuttled there. Drama, tragedy and power. A bleak, windswept spot with a lovely face, but a broken heart. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last episode, we walked along Whitehall to visit the Cenotaph and remember the fallen. Where are we this week? Paul, we're switching from the poignant human-made war memorials, which always make me pause and think, uh, be they the Cenotaph or any of the other memorials that are found right across the British Isles and around the world, to a natural location that has a similar effect on me. It's a landscape that never fails to stop me in my tracks. It's a bleak, windswept place but it's deep with history and full of majestic beauty, and also a location with an acutely unsettling feeling, because it's a graveyard beneath the sea. We're in one of the world's great natural harbours, Scapa Flow in Orkney. We're in Scapa Flow uh, in the Orcadian archipelago, which is to say the islands that make up Orkney. A lot of people make the mistake of calling them the Orkneys, plural, but you're safest all round to remember to call it Orkney. Orkney is the place. Scapa flow is Norse. It's from the Viking language. Scalpa floy means the Bay of the Isthmus. So it was known a thousand years ago by those uh, outstanding mariners and navigators. 
from Scandinavia and they saw it for what it was, which was a, sh- a sheltered place, a relatively sheltered place uh, in which to moor their fabulous longboats. In terms of our history, modern history, uh, it was used by the British Admiralty during the Napoleonic Wars. Again, it was a safe space at that time for merchant ships bound for trade with the Baltic ports. And so it was a useful roundabout departure point, a place of coming and going for ships moving into the north and east. During the First World War, it was home for the Grand Fleet, the magnificent battleships of the Grand Fleet that took place in engagements like Jutland during the First World War. It amounts to about 80 square miles of safe water. It sits between mainland Orkney and the Isles of Grahamsey, Hoy, South Walls, Flotta, South Ronaldsey and Bury. I always imagine it as being cupped in calloused hands. It can be a forbidding place. You know, when the sun shines on it, it's as beautiful as the rest of Orkney often is. But when the wind blows and the rain falls, it can be a challenging place. It often makes me think of a beautiful face and a broken heart. There's a beauty about it that never goes away, but I think sometimes it can be quite a hard place to love because it's often a challenging physical environment. It's big. It's big then. Oh, 80 square miles, yes. It's a, it's a, it's a considerable space and it was regarded for the longest time as the safest place for, uh, you know, for the Royal Navy, for the home fleet. They figured that if they were in Scapa Flow, surrounded on all sides with narrow approaches, narrow means of getting in and out, that they figured it was an especially safe place. It was for that reason, because it was so big, because it was so so sheltered and safe, that at the end of the First World War, when the German high seas fleet, you know, the entirety of their force was surrendered, it was given to the British to put it out of action, basically, so that the victorious powers knew where those ships were. And so they were all positioned in the the safe anchorage of Scapa Flow. But on the 21st of June, 1919, at this time, the peace talks were going on between the the various powers. Uh, But it was tense because, because it was an armistice and because peace hadn't been formally declared and signed, war could break out again, could have broken out again. So So Germany was anxious. And on the 21st of June, everything came to a head. Rumours had circulated and had reached uh, the German commander in Scapa Flow, Commander Ludwig von Reuter, and he finally decided that the game was up, that war was about to break out again, and that the, the German high seas fleet might be used against the home country. And so he gave orders for the whole lot to be scuttled. Wow. So they, they pulled the plugs out on the, <laughs> in the in the hulls of all the ships, and they all began to sink. And they all did sink. Well, I mean, that's not that's not strictly true. The plugs were pulled on all 74 German vessels anchored there, and 52 of them went to the bottom. Interventions stopped some of them actually sinking, but they all took on water. And so I suppose it's that more than anything else that Scapa Flow has been famous for, the fact that the German high seas fleet was scuttled there. But uh, my first encounter with the place was in 2005. It was part of filming a documentary series, and I went up to Scapa Flow with two veterans, two old men who were survivors. Kenneth Toop and Arthur Smith were their names. And in 1939, they had been boy sailors aboard the Royal Oak, which was a a huge battleship. You know, they were both under 18, 
and they were on station, on duty in Scapa Flow. And I went up there for the 65th anniversary of the sinking of Royal Oak. Royal Oak was sent to the bottom of Scapa Flow in 1939, at the very beginning of the, of the Second World War. Oh, I, sh- I mean, before I forget, Scapa Flow has given us a word in the English language now. It was often a posting for uh, Londoners, and it was known as one of the most exposed and bitterly cold places you could get sent. The sailors hated going there because it was so damn cold. And so the, the Cockneys among them made it Scapa Flow, go. And from Scapa Flow, we get the word scarper. <laughs> you know, so when you talk about scarpering, it comes from Scapa Flow, go. What are you going to do now? I'm going to scarper. Comes from Scapa Flow. So perhaps that, more than anything else, gives you a sense of, of the atmosphere up there, the way in which it was regarded by, you know, by sailors down through, the, down through the ages. Safe it might have been, but by God, it was a hard place to be at times. So on the one hand, for centuries, it's been a protected place to aim for, a safe anchorage. But on the other hand, it sounds pretty inhospitable. It was no picnic. <laughs> it was no picnic. And, and, I, mean, I mean, to make matters worse, it has always been associated with tragedy. Lord Kitchener, who was the Secretary of State for War during the First World War, he sailed from Scapa Flow aboard HMS Hampshire on the 5th of June 1916. He was on a top-secret mission to Russia, because in 1916 there were already rumours of revolution in Russia, and revolution was going to take Russia out of the war. Russia was an ally of Britain in the First World War, and Britain was panic-stricken about losing a huge and powerful ally, uh, because revolution would have taken them out of action. And so Kitchener set out on a top-secret mission to go to Russia to try and put a bit of backbone back into the government and back into the people. But barely clear of Scapa Flow, they struck a mine because both sides had been, you know, there were mines in the in the water as part of the naval war between Britain and Germany. The Hampshire struck a mine and the Hampshire went to the bottom. More than 700 men were lost, Kitchener among them. It spawned a whole conspiracy theory. I mean, for years after, people speculated about what had really happened to HMS Hampshire, and it, it went up to and including that, uh, that Joseph Stalin was actually Lord Kitchener, <laughs> because there was a vague physical similarity between the two men. Uh, so the, the conspiracy theories went wild, but HMS Hampshire went to the bottom. The following year, 1917, HMS Vanguard sank in Scapa Flow because her, uh, all her munitions, all the explosives aboard blew up. There was some kind of bungling mistake and the whole lot exploded while she was sat at anchor. And of over 840 men on Vanguard, only two survived. So in 1918, as the First World War drew to an end, it was full of ships, German ships, British ships. Uh, Yeah, 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 absolutely. It was a safe anchorage, but because of the, the amount of naval traffic that was going through there, from time to time there were accidents and tragedies as well. You know, it was like the busiest naval car park you could imagine. You know, there were always ships coming and going. And sometimes things didn't end well, but that set the stage for the Second World War. And it was still, for all the tragedy, it was still regarded as the safe haven, as the place to keep the fleet. So those two chaps that I met, they were lovely. I'll never forget Kenneth Toop and Arthur Smith. They're both gone now. But they were 
two lovely chaps. They were quite different characters. They, they had both been boy sailors, both 16, 16, 17, there or thereabouts. They were aboard Royal Oak, and she was a veteran of the First World War. She had been part of the Battle of Jutland. And at the time, which is to say the 13th of October, 1939, she was one of only two battleships that were actually in Scapa Flow. It should have been a lot busier, but the Admiral of the fleet at that time, Charles Forbes, he had been rattled for a few days and weeks before the 13th of October, seeing a lot of German reconnaissance aircraft flying overhead. And he, be- he began to wonder that there was trouble coming, that there might be a bombing raid or, or whatever. And so he took the decision to send almost the entire fleet out into the open sea, where they would actually be safer, rather than all the eggs in one basket. If they were dispersed out into the open water, they would be safer. And so Royal Oak had stayed behind one of two ships to maintain a kind of a defence of the anchorage. But they weren't really expecting trouble. Uh, But as it happened, Forbes had been quite right to be suspicious because on the night of the 13th of October, a lone German U-boat came in. It was supposed to be the case. They had uh, various blocks, concrete blocks, rubble had been sunk into the various approaches so that you could only come and go through them at high tide. It was restricted access for the sake of security. But nonetheless... A single U-boat with a very skilled commander aboard managed to scrape its way in at highest tide. It came in through one of the access ways into Scapa Flow, took the opportunity and fired three torpedoes into Royal Oak's hull. And within a matter of minutes, she was, you know, she was gone. And out of a crew of 1,400, 833 men and boys perished. And that included around 100 boy sailors, all of whom were under the age of 18. Uh, so it was a terrible tragedy, and Arthur and uh, and Kenneth were amongst the, the boys who survived it. So I went up with them for the 65th anniversary of the loss. Kenneth, he looked like an old soldier, you know, very tall and straight, and he had a clipped moustache, and he looked like a military man. He had made a point of going up on annual pilgrimage over the years. He'd, he was often part of the commemoration. But Arthur, it was his first, his first and only trip. It was the first time he'd ever been back to Orkney in all the years. And I, I paid special attention to, to Arthur because he, it was his first time there and we, we were out on a boat, a little boat for the wreath-laying service and we were out over the wreck site, which was unnerving because Scapa Flow is quite shallow. It's not open sea. It's like a, it's like a gigantic rock pool. And although we couldn't see Royal Oak, we knew that she was this leviathan eight, nine hundred feet long battleship was just really below the surface, just a few fathoms down, and it was unnerving knowing that we were rising and falling on such a massive sunken ship. And I watched Arthur blaze wreath out onto the water, and afterwards I asked him, you know, what thoughts had been going through his mind as he was, as he was doing that. And he said that he was thinking about his mates on the night in question, He had been with five other boys. And because they were under 18, they were allowed to be at war, but they weren't allowed to smoke. (laughs) So they were in the habit, the boys were all in the habit of sneaking out on deck and hiding in the shadow of the guns and having a fly cigarette together. And on this particular night, Arthur remembered being with his pals and and they all had cigarettes and someone struck a match and the wind blew it out. It struck another match and it blew out again. And so a third light was struck and the boys all recoiled from it because there's an old tradition about not taking the third light. 
The idea is that if you're soldiers on active service and you're out in the dark, if someone strikes a match, a sniper in the area might see it. And then if the light goes on a second time, he'll get a bead on it. And on the third strike, he'll pull the trigger because you'll be able to see your face. So traditionally, you don't take the third light, it's bad luck. And so all the boys pulled away from the light and Arthur remembered that he alone leant in and lit his cigarette on it. And he said, all my mates died that night and I was the only one that survived. So what does that tell you about luck? And I never, I never forgot that. I never forgot being in the presence of, of an old sailor, remembering the loss of, of boys, you know, 16 and 17 year old boys. Kenneth Toot rather died on the 27th of May, 2015. Uh, you know, I got the news that he had died some, some years after the filming and that left Arthur Smith as the last of them all the last survivor of Royal Oak, and he died on the 16th of September 2016, the last of the veterans of Royal Oak to die. And the memories of both men make Scapa Flow a particularly poignant place for me. It was considered a safe anchorage, but it didn't offer complete protection. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. It's a paradox, I suppose, but when you, but when you think of all the thousands upon thousands of men who had a safe time in Scapa Flow. It protected thousands of men over the years. And yes, there were accidents because there are always accidents around large quantities of high explosives or, or people in active service. Ships are lost. But Scapa Flow, on balance, was a safe place. And, you know, most possibly most poignant of all, every year, Royal Navy divers go down onto the wreck. It's a protected site. You know, lots of people dive on some of the German wrecks in Scapa Flow, but Royal Oak is protected. You're not allowed anywhere near it. It's a war grave because, amongst other things, it theoretically still contains human remains of people who died aboard her. And so it's protected. You're not, you're not allowed on it. But every year the Royal Navy sends down a couple of divers and they replace the white ensign, the flag. I think it sits on the bow of the, uh, uh, on the stern of the ship. I could be wrong. Uh, but they go down and they take off the old one that just hangs in the water. You know, it's, it's many fathoms down and they take away the old one and they put a new one on. And it, it signifies that for many people, Royal Oak is still on active service. Although she's on the bottom of Scapa Flow, because of the ensign that's replaced every year, in a certain spiritual sense, Royal Oak is still on active service with the Royal Navy. And there's footage of the process of replacing the ensign and it's a flag, it's a white flag with the, with the Union Jack in one corner and it, it just hanging there in the, in the darkness like a shroud is it, terribly evocative. It's a terribly powerful image. So the site is considered a war grave? It is indeed, yes. It is a, it is a war grave. Um, and another part that I remember of the service, the, the local minister from one of the local churches in Kirkwall, I think, was presiding over the, over the 65th anniversary service. And I remember him saying that for people of an age around Orkney and around Scapa Flow who grew up on this story, 
that they often remember it. You know, he said, the Royal Oak is never far from Orcadians' minds. There's not many days go by when we don't remember. You know, there's this abiding sadness about, about the terrible loss of all those 833 men and boys. And so it's a place of memory, and it's also a tomb. You know, it's a watery tomb where those lost men and boys are cradled. And elsewhere around Scapa Flow, of course, are the wrecks, or the remains of the wrecks of the German fleet that went down. But during the 1920s, they became a very valuable source of scrap metal. And engineers pioneered a way of going down with divers and attaching big steel tubes to the hull of the ships. And it was possible to pump air into the wrecks, into the sunken hulls, and gradually welders were put down and, and sealed, you know, sealed over the, the cracks and, and, and made them watertight again to such an extent that eventually it was possible to pump in enough air to make the, the hulks rise to the surface of the water. So these battleships were brought back and then they were towed away and cut up for scrap. And a whole industry evolved around Scapa Flow doing this. And it, it used to give me nightmares. I mean, I used to think about, you know, climbing down one of those steel umbilicals into the hull of a sunken ship and going about your business down there while all that dark water pressed down from above. But that was how it was done. And so over the years, a lot of the 50-odd ships that had been scuttled were brought to the surface and taken away. So now all that remains are those they couldn't get to. Some of them were in, you know, too badly damaged or they were in, you know, they were just in, in conditions, in positions under the water that they, they couldn't bring them up. But scuba divers visit them to this day. In the immediate aftermath of the sinking of Royal Oak, the Navy needed to find out what had happened. I mean, they were pretty sure they knew what had happened, but, you know, they had to check. And so they sent down this commercial diver and he went down onto the hull and he, I mean, he had horror stories to tell about naked bodies of dead men in the water and, and all the rest. But it was he who found the three holes punched by the three torpedoes and he found the remains of the torpedoes themselves, you know, the brass propellers that were identified as being of German construction. And by the time I was talking to him, he was a very elderly man in his 80s, but still a big, strong man. And when we turned up at, his, at the door of his cottage, there was a cannonball, you know, a cast-iron cannonball, I mean, not much smaller than a football at his front door. And the guy we were with, that, that was our guide that had taken us to visit him, he said, try picking that up. And, you know, one by one, myself and the cameraman, whatever, we bent down and, you know, you could just about pick this thing up in both hands. And the old guy came out to his front door and our fixer said, you know, do your thing with a cannonball. And he just put one huge, hoary hand on top of the cannonball and picked it up and turned it over. It was like a trick by the strongest man in the world. What was the cannonball? It was, oh, goodness knows. I mean, you know, people have been using, you know, had been in that area since, you know, certainly the Napoleonic era. No doubt it was firing practice down through the years with cannonballs. And at some or other time we'd found this and had salvaged it. One of the fascinating things about that industry of raising the ships, once America started testing for the atomic bomb, when they were testing and blowing them up in the desert in the 1940s, from that moment on, the, the amount of background radiation in planet Earth went up markedly. And it's still with us. You know, the radiation from those test explosions is still there. And when you make steel, the process of making it in the blast furnace means that 
vast amounts of air are pulled in to the furnace and the radiation that's in the air contaminates the steel. I mean, it's slight, but it's measurable. And if you're in the business of making equipment that's maybe going to measure radioactivity or maybe it's just very sensitive technology that, you're, that you need steel for, what you want is uncontaminated steel. And for a long time, the world's biggest source of uncontaminated steel was the steel that was being salvaged from Scapa Flow because it was underwater during the time of the testing. So when they brought it to the surface, they couldn't like melt it again and change its shape. But if they just cut it up, it was uncontaminated steel. And amongst many things that NASA will neither confirm nor deny is that Scapa Flow steel has been to the moon <laughs> aboard some of the Apollo missions. And that Scapa Flow steel is in some of the instruments on the Voyager probes. The Voyager twins, the probes that were sent out in the 1970s and that are now over a billion miles away from planet Earth. They are the furthest flung man-made objects in the universe that we know about. And they, they almost certainly have within them steel that for a time was cradled in the cold, dark water of Scapa Flow. Now talk about Scarper. <laughs> talk about Scapa Flow Go. Nobody has ever gone further than the Voyager probes and they have aboard them for all time. Steel from Scapa Flow. And I find that a profoundly moving concept. And so, yes, Scapa Flow is in the love letter to the British Isles because you know, I've been there many times now. And every time I go, for whatever reason, I'm there and I look out at that water and I think about Royal Oak and I think about Arthur and I think about Kenneth and I think about those boys in the shelter of the guns lighting their cigarettes and five of them ducking away from the third light and Arthur leaning in and taking his cigarette. And I think about how he survived and they didn't. And that, that thought occurs to me over and over again. And as Arthur said, what does that tell you about luck? When you're there, does the landscape feel majestic to you? Majestic? It's... I love Orkney. I think I've probably said before, it's like nowhere else I've ever been. It doesn't look like Scotland. It doesn't look like Scandinavia. It doesn't look like Shetland, which is the archipelago further north. It's just Orkney. It's a unique place. It can be challenging. You know, the winters are long and dark. The weather is often, well, it's oceanic, isn't it? It's islands. You know, islands are always highly changeable weather and there's a lot of wind that blows and there's a lot of, there's a lot of rain that falls. And, but at other times, the sun comes out and when the sun shines on Orkney, it's, well, it might be the most beautiful place on Earth. And because it has all those extremes, because it has everything, you know, I mean, I've been in, I've been in situations in Orkney where, you know, you're sort of looking about for a dead sheep you could lie behind just to get out of the wind for 10 <laughs> seconds. And everyone walks about like a half-shut knife because, you know, the, the weather can be, can be bleak. But it's also breathtakingly lovely and it's, it, it's got such a story to tell from the Neolithic at least onwards in terms of archaeology for an archaeologist. So many chapters, so many pages of the human story of the British Isles are, are there etched into the, literally into the bedrock of Orkney. 
over the years. I've been all over it. I've been on most of the inhabited islands. And yes, I've been at Scapa Flow many times and it's a, you know, it is a place of sadness. It's a place of memory. It's a place of stories. It's a place of loss. But it's all part of what is what is magical about about Orkney. And I think, I don't know, I sometimes think people have the wrong idea about happiness. You know, people talk about wanting to be happy as though they want to be happy all the time. But I mean, that's a bit like being drunk all the time or high all the time. You know, happiness is enough in small doses and it isn't what life is all about. And when you go to a place like Scapa Float and you're confronted with, with what happened there, it's part of the texture, it's part of the reality. And I find it enriching, genuinely enriching to be on Orkney because it has so much to say. Few fragments here and there are happy and their beauty, but there's also sadness and, and evidence of a hard life lived. Orkney, all in miniature, has so much to say about what life is all about. What impression would all those naval ships have had on the physical landscape, do you think? I mean, when the entire German fleet and the British ships guarding them were there, that's a lot of vessels. Yeah, but if you go up, it's big. I mean, Scapa Flow is big. Uh, you know, your, your, your encounter with it, you know, you could easily, you could lose many fleets up there. It, it, it's a big body of water. You can see why it appealed. It, it's also, in many places, it's, you know, it, it, it's very shallow. You know, a lot of the divers that I spoke to, you know, they talk about how, you know, you could be, you could be on the bottom of Scapa Flow and there's enough, at, at certain times of the day, there'd be enough light to read a paper, <laughs> you know, you know, because the light can penetrate at, at certain points. It's not, it's not deep water. But, you know, it, it served its purpose. It, it, it did what it was intended to do. It, it kept a majority of the, of the fleet safe. Um, but then that extraordinary event of, of 1919, when the, when the German high seas fleet, when the, when the commander there just decided that, no, I, I really think that we're going to go to war again and the, and the damned British are going, to have our, are, going to have our, are going to have our fleet. And he took the extraordinary step of ordering the scuttling and the, and the message was telegraphed around or semaphored around the fleet and they all, all, the, all the various captains obeyed their orders and, and set about scuttling the, the fleet and the, the British officers who were there were only, only able to intervene and save some. But that was what put this... I mean, it was unprecedented, you know, to see, to see a whole fleet being sent to the bottom all at the one time. It's unbelievable. An unbelievable story. But soldiers weren't being lost during that, that the ships were being scuttled, but the men were getting away from them. Royal Oak. Royal Oak was sent to the bottom with all hands. Out of the over a thousand men, eight hundred and thirty-three men and boys died. You know, that was a tragedy. The scuttling of the high seas fleet was a loss of equipment, but the loss of Royal Oak was loss of life. I know you're a scuba diver, Neil. Were you tempted to brave the icy waters to see the German boats that are left? I, I, I have done a certain amount of scuba diving, but to dive in boats, to go into contained spaces, i.e. inside wrecks, you need a higher level of qualification than I have. I'm, I was qualified to do what they call open water diving, so I can be underwater. But if I had, if I had been qualified, I would have done it. But I've always been quite faintly horrified by the thought of sunken ships. I've seen ships on the bottom. I mean, when I did do scuba diving, I've seen wrecks. And, I, you know, I, I remember being beside a, a sunken fishing trawler 
and seeing something that should be alive on the surface, dead on the seabed, is a strange feeling. It puts the hairs up on the back of my neck because there's, a, there's something profoundly wrong. And I tell you, I mean, the thought of ever going down and seeing whatever it is that remains of Royal Oak, a vast battleship lying on her side, dead on the seabed, the thought of it almost makes tears prick in my eyes at the wrongness of that. And I, I don't know if I would really want to see Royal Oak where she lies now. Glasgow made the Clyde, and the Clyde made Glasgow, a river that powered a city, lined with shipbuilders constructing a fifth of all the ships in the world. Luxury transatlantic flagships, legendary battle cruisers built as war loomed. Fitters, riveters and welders, Clyde-built men, skilled, tough and hard-working. A river that built some of the most famous ships ever to sail the world's oceans. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be lovely to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter and write a review of this week's podcast to share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios and graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. <laughs>